This podcast is a publication of the Engineering Management Institute, where we build professional development systems to help engineers and their firms grow. You can now download our recently published AE Industry Trends Report, which contains answers to the following questions. How long will the great resignation last? Are firms still allowing remote work and how is it affecting their productivity? How are successful firms using data to create people-centric cultures? You can find answers to these questions and more in our latest report, which you can download at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Welcome to episode number 11 of the Engineering Quality Control Podcast, a podcast focused on helping engineering professionals ensure their projects are of the highest quality. The show will provide strategies and concepts to help you address quality control on all of your projects. I am your host, Brian Wagner, professional engineer. In this episode of the Engineering Quality Control Podcast, we're talking with Ray Gradwell, who's the Associate Vice President civil engineering, and land survey at AI Engineers. And we'll be talking about quality control and quality management and his experiences from starting out as a project manager, or actually even from business school, construction, to civil engineering. And eventually, we'll even talk about how he handled heckling at a public hearing or so on a civil engineering project. So I look forward to sharing this with you. So let's jump right in. So now I'd like to welcome our guest for today, Ray Gradwell, who's the Associate Vice President of Civil Engineering and Land Surveying at AI Engineering Incorporated. Ray, welcome to the Engineering Quality Control Podcast. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me on uh, this podcast. So let's just get started. Maybe just give the listeners a little bit about your career path, and maybe how you got to where you are today, but some of the things that you've learned and where you have come from. My career path is in a pretty diverse ride to where I'm at today. I began as a business student at a local college in Connecticut. Soon realized after my first year of business school that business education and business focus wasn't really for me. My father had some friends in the engineering and construction industry. My dad was a general contractor. He introduced me to a, a friend who was a surveyor and a civil engineer. Got me started there working as a summer intern, as a surveyor, as a, you know, a rod person. And uh, basically, it's just a general office kind of helper. And I really, really liked it being in that office, being in that environment, and then chose to basically transfer after my first year of business school into a civil engineering program at University of New Haven, where I graduated in 1991. As you may know, 1991 wasn't a really good year to graduate for a college graduate. Um, the job market was pretty tough at that point. So that said, I still needed to make money and, and help pay for the bills around the house. So I went to work for my father. As, as I mentioned before, he was a general contractor. He taught me a lot about business and then with respect to the construction side of how engineering and how engineering documents are kind of perceived by contractors or site development folks. I ended up working for him for about two years and then got my first job with a consulting firm in North Haven, Connecticut. Worked for them for a short, for about two years as well. Went on to work for the Department of Transportation in Connecticut for about a year. And then went back to that consulting firm for about 13 years because of, you know, work at the Department of Transportation was great work, but it wasn't my forte. My forte was to be more in the private development world versus in the, in the public infrastructure world. 
worked for that company for about 13 years, uh, focusing on you know public education and school site development projects. Uh, we did probably 50 schools in 13 years I was there. The schools where PK through eight high schools, middle schools, and all over the state of Connecticut and basically the Northeast region. And some of the schools were quite challenging. They didn't have sewer connections. They didn't have water connections. So we had to provide water and sewer and septic systems for some of these schools. But some of the schools were really cookie cutter versus here, here's a parking lot, here's a building. And then some of the schools were really kind of in the rural areas where they didn't have water, didn't have sewer, and you had to provide those kind of connections and, and services to those folks. So I worked for that company for about 13 years, went on to work for another company. Uh, and then I worked for a, a private development company where we focused on really private development type of work, whether it be residential, big box developments, small box developments, all over basically the country. So I followed them in those big box developments and residential developments throughout the country, as well as getting involved with the Army Corps Reserve Center revitalization and, and basically the BRAC program where reserve centers were being redone, renovated, and reconstructed. And so we did a number of design build projects with contractors all over the United States, designing and building reserve centers. After that, I ended up working for a, a company in Hartford, Connecticut, where I basically ran the entire company. The company was called Freeman Companies. We were a civil engineering, multidisciplinary engineering firm, did geotechnical, did land surveying, you know, did all the traffic engineering, as well as landscape architecture. But I ended up working for a friend and actually ran his whole business for him, which was a great opportunity coming from a business major, uh, working for a family firm, then working through a number of different firms, and then actually having the opportunity to run a whole firm you know, basically from top to bottom, the HR department, the accounting department, all the engineering disciplines, and just making sure we were kind of focusing on kind of the key goals of the year, key goals of, of rolling the owner of the company, and the key goals of, of the staff that are basically working for us. So it was a really great opportunity to work for him for a couple of years. I got the opportunity to come over to AI about three years ago at this point now. I made the jump over here. AI has been a great, great company to work for. But my basically the private development world has been left long behind now, and I'm basically focusing on you know public infrastructure type projects, public infrastructure regarding kind of electrical resiliency and you know new substations in and around bridges and highways throughout the New York area, large bridge projects in Massachusetts and Connecticut and New York, highway projects in Massachusetts and Connecticut and New York. So most of the focus in the last three years has been on the public infrastructure side. My group is a, a group of about between 20 and 30 people, really, depending on the time of year. We have a civil engineering team, probably around 15 or so people. And we have a survey team, you know, five plus people at, at times. Our survey team is, is a great team and they have uh, two field crews, a number of other you know, office assets, and they're really, really focused in on technology. What I mean by technology, I mean you know, laser scanning, UAS, you know, which is the drone type of uh, surveys that we've done as well. So there, these guys and, and guys for that matter in our survey department are really, really focusing on, on technology and, and really, really get it. That focus of technology comes back upstairs to the civil engineering team as well. As I mentioned, scanning, basically every civil engineering project we have right now is done using a scan to start. You know, we have the scanner available to us. We send the scanner out to the field. So we scan the elements, whether it be an intersection or a park path or a pond dam, we'll scan all those elements and use that data to augment design and to help us kind of with the quality process as well. Having a three-dimensional scan, a point cloud allows us to check elements of our design without having to go out into the field, 
because most of our job sites are are pretty far at this point. So, you know, you don't want to spend three hours driving for a, a 15 minute dimension check where if you have a scan created initially, one of your initial site visits, you can just go back to the scan and, and check that dimension and say, oh, yes, this looks great. Or uh, we got to do something a little bit different. So my career path, really, like I said, it started as a business major. Then I worked for a construction company, my dad's firm, and then worked for a number of different engineering consulting companies and have landed at AI Engineers as an associate vice president of the um, land survey and civil engineering team. So thanks for the intro there. And I'm glad to uh, you know let everybody know how my career path has developed from a business major to a civil engineer and a vice president. Well, I think it's so important that when you look at a lot of people that have really progressed through their career and moved up the food chain per se, the people that I've talked to and the people that I know the most that have had the most success as they've continued to promote and, and do more things are the people that have worked in a lot of different disciplines or markets or aspects of civil engineering or surveying like your career path. And even myself, I've been very similar and had the luck to do that same thing. Overall, you're kind of running day-to-day operations of the group of people, as you said, like 15, 20 people at any time. And you're using this technology for scans and things like that. What kind of things are you doing on a daily basis to make sure that you're starting projects off on the right foot? The scans can be a great resource with a ton of data and all the information you could ever want. But if something's wrong with it, it's going to cascade forward. So I'm just curious about as technology and as you welcome new technologies and new opportunities, what kind of things are you thinking about as you're starting projects or working in projects? The laser scanning and the UAS services, which is, you know, the flying over sites and creating these ortho photos, or for that matter, we can create topographic maps and, and plans. It really starts with that. As the design develops, we really use a lot of blue beam and blue beam review sessions. Those are basically plan markups sessions where we have every engineering in my group has a, a license to blue beam. And a lot of our clients actually like the blue beam review sessions with respect to plan reviews and QC checks. So we use those pretty extensively. We use, we use some agencies like the you know three colors, the, the red, the green, and the blue, basically markup review sessions to identify the comment and the, the comment response and how the comment was addressed. So we use the blue beam has been a, a great tool for you know how to, the QC checks of documents. I always talk with our project managers and review this with myself. I always go back to the, the contract documents, whether it be a a scope and fee we we provide a client or whatever the agency may provide at, at bid and pricing of the project. So we always go back to those contract elements to make sure that the items we identify on the plan or in the three-dimensional model that we're proposing and providing to a client are one, in accordance with the guidelines and the specifications and two, capture all those elements that were planned by that agency or by that client. We want to make sure we capture all those and not miss anything. So I kind of stress to my engineers and project managers and and go back with respect to how I approach projects is go back to the original contract, the original proposal, the original scope and fee to make sure you you cover all those elements as you're preparing the design. A lot of times as a designer, the design team may get locked into completing the design, get locked into that mission of getting that submission or hitting that deadline and kind of just focus in on so much that they kind of forget about the outside elements, such as an element they may have missed on a scope or a fee or something that the client has wished to be a part of the project as part of the program and our program element. That's kind of what I would look at with respect to that, going back to the contract and contract elements, the scopes and fees of projects, 
and then using those blue beam sessions, those blue beam review sessions to quality check the documents with respect to you know stuff that's right, stuff that's wrong, stuff that may need a little bit more work or a little, little, little more clarification with respect to those things. And really kind of focusing on you know making sure we put together clear descriptions on plans, clear plans. So contractors and lay people in the field can understand what this two-dimensional plan and a bunch of lines may be. It's it's hard to use you know two dimensions to describe how things will be built in three dimensions as they are. So sometimes it's, it's so as an engineer or a land surveyor for that matter, as you're documenting something on paper or on plan view that's going to be presented in two dimensions, you want to present it in a clear and concise manner. So doing that with different line types, different line thicknesses, different line styles. Those are all elements and tools we could use to do that, making sure your call-outs are clear and concise and and descriptive enough, where if you're asking for the the contractor to provide, say, a waterproofing on a concrete structure, making sure it just doesn't say provide waterproofing on the structure, make sure you want to get the ceiling, the walls, and the floor as well. So make sure you want to cover all the elements that you want waterproof, not just a, a note to saying provide waterproofing. Oh, okay, that's great, but where do you want me to put it? That's the first question the contractor is going to ask you. <laughs> Where do you want me to put it? The walls, the ceiling, the floor, or somewhere other place? So, If they ask you or they bid it that they're only going to put it on the walls and not and then ask for their change order later, you know? Yeah, exactly. I do get out in the field a lot, Brian. Um, I am a multidisciplinary. You know, yeah, I'm associate vice president as well, but I'm still a project manager on a bunch of projects. You know, running a, a program over at Lockheed Martin in, in Connecticut where we're, you know, doing site type projects, which is for duck banks and, and duck banks do parking lots and out to the street. But we're also doing a lot of building renovation type projects. So I'm a multidiscipline project manager. I was out in the field yesterday, checking uh, in on with the contractor, making sure they understand the plans, answering a bunch of questions they may have with respect to the, you know, the soffit and the ceiling, answering some electrical questions they may have with respect to lighting and the lighting conflict with a, you know, like a machine that's going to open into the light. So those are the things that and then questions that I can't answer or because I don't feel confident in answering, I'll, I'll bring back to our structural engineers or our electrical engineers or our mechanical electrical and plumbing folks as well. So for the most part, you know, having that background as an engineer and working for my father in the general contracting you know, world, that gave me the opportunity to kind of understand what the folks in the field are actually seeing and, and how they're interpreting those plans. Right. I think it's so important that our plans paint a picture, essentially, for that contractor and that they're the expert in what they do or they wouldn't be successful in their own right. So that communication and that interaction is so important to everybody at any level in civil engineering, because you're going to use some of those questions that you may have even heard yesterday. I feel like you're going to think about when you're looking at another project next week, that interaction is so valuable. You mentioned the RFPs and and that you do a lot of public work now, but you have a history of some private work, obviously. The public work RFPs normally get into a lot of bullet items and we need to present this, this, and this, and this is the real scope. Private sectors, that's not always true. They just want to build this building on this property or they want X number of lots on this property. When it comes to the proposal itself, what kind of advice do you have in your experience in executing and preparing those RFPs? Because if you don't do it well enough for the public work, you're not going to necessarily win the work. If you put yourself in a poor situation because of scope and scope creep or or the fee that you assign to things, then you're going to run the risk of losing money or not being profitable. Do you have any advice for people that are kind of in that role or maybe new to that role and seeing those things? 
having detailed scopes as you develop proposals is one's going to benefit the client because they're going to basically understand what you're going to propose. That's also going to you know benefit yourself and your company by if the client has a you know a differing opinion on what they see, you can always go back to the detailed scope to describe, say, hey, this is what we talked about. This is in the scope of the project. This is what we're providing you. And then they say, okay, that's great. Or they have another discussion a little bit further on. But you know, providing detailed scopes is great. I've seen a lot of engineers and for that matter, you know, architects will put together two and three bullets scoped for hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of work. It's really gray and really vague. And it leaves the company or the firm at a lot of risk. So the more detail you can put in to a, a, the initial proposal, do a Google Earth view of the site if you can, if you can't get access to a site with a personal visit, street view it, go on the, the local town or municipality's website and go through the GIS system to see what kind of services there may be at the site, such as storm drainage or water and sewer. Look through the zoning regulations on town or municipality's website as well. So do your homework when you're putting these proposals together, especially when respect to a private development project. Caveat the proposals when you can with respect to, say, the amount of meetings you're going to provide. A lot of times this, the owner will say or the client will say, you got to do all the meetings. Well, all the meetings could be 10 or it could be five or it could be 100. So you want to try to caveat those so you don't have open-ended contracts or scopes that never really end and really kind of will beat you up financially. Um, if you say, I'll provide five meetings and each meeting is going to be an hour, that's pretty clear there. You know, it's five meetings times an hour. It's five, you know, it's five hours of meetings versus all meetings. All meetings could be five or it could be 500. You really don't know. So those are the kind of things I learned at, you know, one of the bigger firms I worked at and it was focused on private development, you know, making sure you're clear and provide some key caveats to items like meetings or comment responses. We want to respond to kind of reasonable comments. Sometimes you get some comments that are like, wow, that's really crazy and it's going to change everything. So you want to respond to kind of reasonable comments and then you have to provide a definition of what reasonable is. It's a little bit more understanding that, you know, one round of reasonable comments is not respond to all crazy comments. So those are kind of things you'd use as you put together some of these proposals. One, you know, clear and concise scopes, adding caveats to elements such as meetings or comment responses. And do your homework initially, like visit a site. If you can't visit a site, do a Google Earth and, and then view the municipality's kind of guidelines, regulations, and, and GIS site for any other elements that may be helpful for you to understand the site, especially with respect to zoning. If you thought the site was a as-of-right job or as-of-right project, and it actually needed a zone change to be a, a realistic, you know, viable project, that's a big difference. You know, And if you propose that to a client as an as-of-right job, and it, he finds out that it's going to be a zone change. It's, it could be a game changer and a game stop for that client after he spent hundreds of thousands of dollars with respect to the permitting process and entitlement process. Do you look at every proposal your project managers send out, or do you have systems that limit how much you look at, or what kind of accountability do you have to make sure that your PMs and other people in your firm are kind of doing those things that you just mentioned? Brian, I look at every proposal that goes out whether it's a $2,000 proposal or a couple million dollar proposal. I'll base my time I spend on these proposals based on the, you know, the scope of the project, but more detailed couple million dollar proposal, I'll spend a lot of time reviewing those proposals. So yeah, I'll review basically every proposal from the scope. I'll request, you know, basically man hour backup for the, as to how they develop the fee, whether it's a sheet count or a man hour estimate. And I'll review that as well. 
then I'll review it with um, our senior vice president, you know, Rohit, who's been in business for nearly as much as long as I have. He's a business savvy engineer, but an engineer as well. We'll kind of review these the bigger ones together. The smaller ones we'll, we'll let go to the client without you know, kind of a associate or a senior vice president review. So it's really the associate vice president review initially. And if they're over, say, $100,000, I'll kick them up to a senior vice president's review with respect to the scope and the fee. The contracts, terms and conditions will get reviewed as well. I'll review it initially just to pick out any major red flag items like maybe insurance limits or those type of things. And then we'll have um, our professional liability insurance carrier actually review the contract as well to make sure that the project the project we're working on can be covered by that care, that coverage or that what we're carrying. So those are the, kind of the key things I look at. So yeah, I'll review every proposal from $1,000 on up. If it's such a size or order of magnitude with respect to the scope and the fee, I'll have a senior vice president review with me. And then the terms and conditions, obviously, I'll review as well. But um, our legal folks will get involved as well reviewing those as well. Because you have the best intentions with all the terms and conditions, but you just, if things go sideways, then you don't want to be really out there. You know, there's terms and conditions like what cost us money, like if we need to provide railroad insurance. Typically, we don't cover railroad, have it railroad insurance. We'll need a rider or an umbrella to provide railroad insurance on projects because we're just an engineering firm. We're not really working on the railroad very often. So if we need to provide railroad insurance, it's going to be an, a hit to a project or a hit to our overhead. So we just want to make sure we, we understand that we need to provide something like that if needed. We connected on LinkedIn a while back, and that's how I met you. And I'm looking at your LinkedIn page now, and you definitely progressed up the ranks, as you've said, that you project manager to director and associate vice president and all these different roles. But what advice would you have for a listener that's working towards moving into one of those roles? And every firm is going to be different in some of the terminology of what they're calling it. But, but I'm thinking like that, as you start progressing beyond just managing projects and start managing people, what kind of advice would you have for people in those roles? First and, and biggest thing to have and how to deal with people is have empathy, you know, because everybody has a different take on life, take on society, take on the world. So have some empathy for that. Everybody has different things going on within their life, within their family. They need to deal with at times. So having empathy and being able to put your feet, your place in your yourself in their shoes as they develop and as they work for you is kind of key and it kind of helps them. I'm working for a pretty good guy. He understands what I'm dealing with. So that's kind of really one of the biggest things I've learned over the last, say, 15 years of being kind of a peer-driven project manager, getting projects out the door to being a more manager of, of people and then kind of managing projects as well. So having empathy is kind of the biggest thing. And being a, a people person is helpful. Being able to communicate freely and actively is a key to being able to manage people. Trying to minimize taking sides when you have employees with differing opinions. You want to try to be consistent kind of in the middle where you can. You may have to take a side at some point, but initially kind of be consistent in the middle. Back to managing people and dealing with people. It's trying to have a, a consistent kind of like attitude about work. You know, just try not to be a roller coaster. Trying to be have a consistent attitude and flair throughout the day or throughout the career or your career and how to deal with elements and not be a roller coaster of emotions that you know people kind of shy away from at times when you're you may be having be in a bad mood. So if you're more consistently emotionally driven or emotionally focused 
people will be able to deal with you easier. So that kind of the three things, you know, having empathy, being able to deal with people and having, you know, kind of a consistent emotional trail will definitely help you develop your career in dealing with people rather than dealing with projects as you may develop in your career. That's an excellent transition to the next little segment where we've talked about a lot of things today that may not apply to some listeners, just they're not in that position. They're not necessarily, hopefully they'll bank some of this information for the future, but some people it may be very pertinent to. I like to leave or try to leave people with something that's beneficial. And we call it the power of experience segment, but something that you maybe wish you had heard or or been taught when you were younger or an experience that you had that you just want to share that you think would be beneficial to the general engineering population. Back in 2013, Brian, I was in the private development world, focusing on private development type projects. I was working on a large subdivision project in the state of Connecticut in a very, very nice town. There was a 40 or something lot subdivision on a 70 or something acre parcel of land. Around 50 acres was going to be donated back to the town. And then the other, say, 20 acres would be used for the development of the home sites. In my opinion, we were doing the right thing. You know, the town was getting a giant piece of property that they would be able to use in perpetuity. Our plan didn't impact wetlands at all. Our plan didn't impact wetland upland review areas at all. We had driveways that were out of those areas. So it was, it was a completely nice plan. But like I said, like I described here, the town is very attached to this property. They use this property for a lot of years, hiking and biking and just enjoying the property. Albeit it wasn't their property, that, you know, because it was a privately owned piece of property. Townspeople did use the property. So they got really attached to it. So the public hearings for the wetlands uh, approval process and the public hearing for the zoning process were very, very heated and very, very controversial. And I had a friend that owned a piece of property right next to this development. And he, he would come to the meetings as well, just because he was in a butter and a neighbor. And I was presenting the project. I think I was presenting the drainage aspect of the project to you know the public. And the public was just obnoxious, rude, you know, shouting, you know, obnoxious comments throughout my presentation. But I was basically locked in, talking about the job, talking about the drainage systems. And just focusing on what I knew, basically the technical aspects of the project. I knew the drainage system. I knew the stormwater improvements we were proposing and all those elements. And Jerry, my friend, he came up to me after me and he goes, how did you do that? I'm like, Jerry, the only way I do this is I know what I'm talking about. I feel comfortable with what I design and what my firm has designed. And I'm passionate about that as well. I have empathy for those people as well. I feel where they're coming from. I kind of use their energy to kind of just focus in on what I know and how to present it the best I possible can and leave the emotions to the side. It was a great project. We ended up getting denied in wetlands process, albeit zero impacts to wetlands and zero impacts to upland reviewers, and the project ended up dying. But that's just kind of learning experience. He, he was like, how did you hold it together during that presentation when you were getting heckled and people, people were making rude of the noxious comments? I'm like, like I said, I, I was just focusing on what I knew. I knew the engineering aspect. I knew the storm drain is cold and what we're proposing would affect the stormwater management plan and just focus in on that and just tune everything else out. That's kind of what I got out of that presentation and that project is be able to tune out the, the bad and, and focus in on you know, your technical capabilities. And when you can do that, you can really be a success with respect to presenting projects or, or being a success in business as well. I don't think I've ever been heckled in any of the public hearings, but I can imagine, and I've been to hearings where that definitely could be the case. So what's the best way to get in touch with you or learn more about you and what you're doing in your career? 
You can hit me up through LinkedIn as you and I have connected, or you can use my email address. It's R-G-R-A-D-W-E-L-L at AIEngineers.com. You can reach out via phone as well. Call me at AI Engineers at 860-635-7740. So those kind of the three ways you can get me and get me a LinkedIn, get me through email or, or get me through the phone, which I will pick up at any time. So I appreciate your time here. This has been great. And I appreciate you taking the time to share some of your experiences and your knowledge with the audience. And it's definitely been beneficial to me. So I hope it's beneficial to them. Thanks. Please remember that you can find the show notes for this episode at engineeringqualitycontrol.com. There you'll find the summary of the key points that we discuss, along with links to Ray's LinkedIn, his email, and AI engineers. Until next time, friends, I wish you the best in all of your engineering endeavors. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to download the latest version of our AE Industry Trends Report to get answers to the questions that you want to ask your staff, but you may be afraid to do so. How long will the great resignation last? How long should you allow employees to work remotely? And how are successful firms using data to grow sustainably for the long term? You can learn the answers to these questions and more by downloading the report at Engineering Management Institute dot org.